Can your partner be brought forth through a medium? We'll find out on this edition of Frank Relationships. You're listening to Frank Relationships with Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Yes, as always, those are my babies. Thanks for getting Daddy started today. Mwah. Medium for the Living, Paul Selig is here with us today. And I'm curious, what is the true self? The true self is the aspect of us that knows the truth of who we are. It's the aspect of the divine that's instilled, I believe, within each of us that's seeking to express itself as the who and the what that we are. It's the infinite self. Is it safe to say that it is our who we are when we strip away, let's see, the noise, the, the things that we want to believe but don't really believe or that we are indoctrinated with by our environment? Is that a way to, is that yeah. a way to capture it? Absolutely. The personality self, my guides say, is a structure, and the true self exists well beyond the idea of personality. The personality is based on a lot of information, where we were born, when we were born, how we grew up, the culture that we live in, and the true self exists well beyond those ideas of who we are. It's the essence of truth. Mm. Is it safe to say that if you can perceive it that you are you are absolutely contributing to its existence. That's what I'm told. You know, how you perceive anything informs what you see. So when you claim something is terrible, you're informing that thing with the consciousness that you hold and you're helping to make it so. Mm -hmm. hmm. And you're saying, that's what I'm told. What does that mean? That it means that I'm a that's... channel. So I work with guides that work through me and teach through me. So while I work as a medium for the living, it's one of the things that I do. I also work with guides that dictate books through me and teach through me. And when I say the guides say, I'm repeating the information that I've been taught as opposed to what I think. Those are two different things. Mm. Does, does what you're given or what you're communicated through become what you think at any point in time? Do you actually take it in and, and do you begin to think it? Yeah, I do. I do. But I tend to make the distinction when people talk to me about the teachings that come through me and what I think about them. I'm still working with the stuff that comes through me. I'm a student of the work mm -hmm. that is, you know, been dictated through me in a series of books. And much of it I own, and I say, yes, this is so, this is now my experience. But a lot of it, when it was first coming through, was a real stretch for me. Mm. And in so many ways, you're saying you haven't, what I hear you saying, is you haven't necessarily mastered all of the things that you're presenting. You're still, uh, for lack of a better word, human, and yeah. going through <laughs> yeah. what you have to go through. But that doesn't trivialize the information that you end up uh, kind of presenting in a book or 
Channeling. Channeling, mm-hmm. yes. That yeah, exactly. I'm a radio. I mean, a medium mm-hmm. in some ways is a radio. And when I'm working with my guides, I'm the radio for the teachings that they bring forth. I'm present for them, but I'm not coming up with them. I'm not coming up with the ideas. I'm literally taking dictation. When I work psychically, and you introduce me as a medium for the living, and it's one of the things I do, the radio that I am is playing you or the people that you ask about, which Mm -hmm. is a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And then I'm hearing them, and I'm interpreting what it feels to be as somebody else. The teachings that come through are channeled. And I make the distinction between sort of inspired teaching, which is someone who's inspired and is delivering what they get, and somebody who's literally channeling, which really is taking dictation. Mm. You work privately, Paul, with people? I do, yeah. I have a practice. Okay. In this moment, I'm feeling like a vibratory <laughs> presence. <laughs> she's, she's digging you, Paul. Ah. I'm loving it. <laughs> I've often wanted to say when I was listening to someone present what was what was being presented as information, kind of do what you this is information, do what you think you need to do with it. And I have at times and and I've also seen other people do it at times um, said to myself, that's true or I I agree. And what I found is that looking at looking at it with those words as ways to determine their validity or not actually kind of trivialized the information it made it it made the information something that i felt that i needed to do something with in terms of determine mm-hmm. whether it was true or false or something like mm-hmm. that instead of mm-hmm. just take it in like what mm-hmm. and do well uh, let me well let me finish the point okay. no, just, i apologize just take it in and sit with it okay and I'm I'm curious, Paul, what you think of that, if that makes any even if it makes any sense to you. Well, I I I think two different things. I think discernment is very important. And if somebody were to tell me, if the guides that I work with were to tell me that the moon was made of green cheese, I'd have to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> now, and I would have to contest it because I'm still operating as a small self who has to make decisions about what's true. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe, and what the guides teach me, and I truly do believe this, that what is true is always true. And I have had the experience again and again with the teachings that come through that, you know, you really can't deny it. When I'm told something about witnessing the divine in anybody else or the ramifications of fear and what making choices based in fear does to me or anyone, I understand the truth of the teaching. And there's no way to question it. Truth is kind of like a, it's it's like a pitch that plays that you really can't deny. Mm -hmm. So I think to be in resonance with truth and to accept something as truthful is fine, but I think we have discernment and we have frankly, the right and the the requirement to question things at times. I think if we don't, you know, who knows what we're listening to and, and the validity of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I hear my my translation of what you're saying about the true is true, whether is is the truth is truth all the time is mm-hmm. kind of the the truth is the truth, whether you can discredit the person who's channeling it or presenting it or, or not, not right. that's okay. what i hear that's, okay. 
That may, okay. All right. I think that makes some sense. Yes. I try sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Welcome to Frank Relationships, a show for you, my brethren, who, like me, are too young to be considered old and too old to be considered young. It's also for those of you who love and support us. We're here to provide weekly wisdom, conversation, and the information that will help create loving and flexible parents and partners. I'm Frank Love, and you can find me, my blog, and my various social media incarnations at franklove.com. If you're listening to the show on Blog Talk Radio, please follow us, and then via iTunes, please subscribe so that you can effortlessly get the show each week. Also, if you're enjoying the show, and of course you are, Please give us a favorable iTunes rating and please share it with your family and friends on your favorite social media platform. We're always looking for new social media friends, so please help us help our communities by spreading the word about the show. Greetings to my co-host, Nancy Goldring. Greetings, Frank. The consummate generalist. Indeed. The super duper co-host. Thank you. Uh Today's guest is considered to be one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. In his breakthrough works of channeled literature, I Am the Word, The Book of Love and Creation, The Book of Knowing and Worth, The Book of Mastery, and the forthcoming The Book of Truth. He has recorded an extraordinary program for personal and planetary evolution as humankind awakens to its own divine nature. Gifted with the unique ability to step into and become the people his clients ask about, and often taking on their personalities and physical characteristics as he hears them telepathically. His abilities have featured have been featured on ABC News Nightline, Fox News, the Biography Channel series, The Unexplained, Game TV's Beyond Belief, and the documentary film Paul and the Word. So, if you, like me, want to know what to experience If you, like me, want to experience the depth of conversation that can be unearthed from a discussion about the truth, which excites the heck out of me, Mm. what our small self is and what the levels of truth are, then stay tuned as your Frank Relationship team talks with none other than psychic, medium, and award-winning author, Paul Selig. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Before we get too deep into today's subject matter, I want to check in with to see what's uh, going on in the news. Paul, please don't be bashful. We certainly mm-hmm. want you to weigh in if there's you've got something you want to share on these these issues that might come up. And certainly, if you got something that you want to throw out there, happy to hear that too and throw that around. Okay, all right, all right. First one. Wh- what are you smiling it. about? I'm just looking at. This. <laughs> Why we obsess over people who do not want us. Yeah. So according to Helen Fisher and some of her colleagues, the reason romantic rejection gets us hooked is that it stimulates parts of the brain associated with motivation, reward, addiction, and cravings. Mm. How's that? It sounds, uh, well, the craving sort of resonates from my meditative experiences Uh and it's all about getting some balance between what you're avoiding and what you're craving Mm -hmm. and so i'm like okay and 
I'm I'm just looking at it even from a personal perspective and in those situations where I felt like I was the one that was hungering mm -hmm. for a for a guy so or So that's happened? I, I'm thinking it had to have happened at least <laughs> once, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> so I'm at least, for the sake of argument, willing to say probably. Okay. Yes. All right. right. <laughs> Thank you. So um, I'm just looking at, and, and oh, and there was this point at which I remember spending time with a man who used to say to me, you make me feel so alive. And we didn't do anything together except, you like did something have together. lunch okay. or, you know we had no we did not have an a physically intimate relationship mm -hmm. and yet i i could say i could suffice it to say probably on every other level like emotionally our lives were entangled a bit mm -hmm. and but for me i wasn't willing to venture beyond the realm of friendship Mm -hmm. And so for him, that felt a little like a rejection. It was mm -hmm. a rejection of what he wanted. Yeah, well, I mean. You know, so, and yet, even then, and I used to think, hmm, this is interesting. He gets, he's getting a lot out of this relationship. He's at least squeezing what juice is there for him. Mm -hmm. And it was as if, sometimes I used to think evidently certain centers of his brain come on. Hey, yeah. at the idea that this is not good that it's not <laughs> what he wants it to be uh -huh. yet he remains super hopeful uh -huh. you know and sometimes i thought that 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 was just painful and i thought it was unfair but that was just my perspective that was my construct gotcha. around what it was i'm curious how that that relationship ended up Whew. Boy, you want to talk about a crash and burn? We cannot get. Well, you know what? Maybe we can get into that with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, it was, and really, I say that. What has me say that is, I I literally prayed that God would just dissolve it. Mm -hmm. I just felt it was so. Uh, it had grown to be unhealthy for me, and I felt unhealthy for him. And yet when I think about some of the things that Paul talks about in terms of what we think a relationship should or shouldn't look like mm -hmm. and the, the ways that we say it should or shouldn't progress and therefore it fits into this box we call relationship, I'm willing to get that I was all wrong. Interesting. You know? All right. And well, well you said you, you're, you're, I guess, uh, uh presenting paul for him but paul, no no you? no no. i'm just uh, it just he paul talks about how we are essentially living with the relics of those things that came before us did i capture that correctly mm -hmm. okay so then i'm essentially living the quality of relationships that the people that came before me say constitute relationship. Mm -hmm. So if the model doesn't doesn't align with what I've been told a relationship is, in my mind it's not a relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if I look in the dictionary and the dictionary says this is a relationship and what I'm doing doesn't match up with that, yeah. I must not be in that. Mm -hmm. So what I'm learning from what Paul presents is that I was in a relationship, mm -hmm. it just didn't line up 
with what I've been told is a workable relationship. And I told myself that it was painful for someone else. Uh And I certainly. Was it painful for you? Only because it. Okay. All right. Yeah. It it was. let, Let me, let me, let me say it differently. It was uncomfortable for me. Gotcha. And that didn't mean it was wrong. Mm-hmm. It meant it was a stretch mm-hmm. for me to remain in it. I did not understand my place in it. And it felt to me out of balance. Mm. And so I prayed for an ending. And woof, and did ended. I get one. <laughs> I'm telling you, boy, that thing was a monster. I've never had, a, I've never had the dissolution of a relationship be so just like I cannot believe this is happening mm-hmm. I mean and I mean and I mean it was so complicated I mean it involved somebody from like 13 years ago and it was just a mess all right okay all right. <laughs> Paul what do you say about what what Nancy has so eloquently presented Oh, it makes sense to me, everything that she's saying. I mean, I think we have ideas and prescriptions about how things should be, and these are inherited structures, and most of the time we don't even question them. Mm-hmm. When we start to question them, we start to create the possibility for something that exists beyond them. You know, I've had the same experience with ending of relationships through prayer and saying, you know, I, I don't know how to get out of this, handle it, mm-hmm. um, only to see everything just fly out the window without any effort on my part. It's been really interesting and right. not a very comfortable process to be in. Right. But I think when something is really not in alignment with your highest good and you're not seeing the way through it, you know, that's one of the ways things can end. Mm. Now, what's the difference between the comfort that she may have experienced because she was being stretched or versus the comfort that... the discomfort that she may have been experiencing because she was out of alignment with her true self? Well, I think anything can be learned through. So, I mean, what my guides say is, you know, every experience we're having, high and low and in between, is an opportunity to learn and grow. So if there's something to be learned through staying in a relationship that's not working, you'll learn through it. But is that the only way to learn those lessons? Not necessarily. You know, I mean, I... I channeled last week, I was doing a class, and the guide said to some woman, they said, you know, imagine you're going from one continent to another or one shore to another in the hold of a ship, and you're seasick from the rocking of the waves. You're still in transit going to this other place. The transit may not necessarily be comfortable, but it's part of what it takes to get you where you need to go. My idea of comfort is getting all my needs met exactly as I want them and not being challenged or confronted by anything. Mm -hmm. And there tends to be no growth in that. I mean, (laughs) happiness for me is a bag of Oreos and a good movie on TV, and that's not necessarily what I need to move forward. Mm -hmm. So the idea of outgrowing a relationship, I think, simply means that there's more to be learned in another form, in another way. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you say a bag of Oreos and, you know, a good TV show is happiness. And I'm, as you're speaking, confronted by this notion that we know when we're moving in the direction of our our highest good because it feels so good to be headed in that direction Mm -hmm. versus when we're in the midst of a quest, you could say, 
and where and and the road is like like the ship you talked about it's wobbly we're sick Mm -hmm. we can't wait for it to be over and yet on the other side of it is another kind of jewel Mm -hmm. so what do you say to somebody who would say oh your emotions are your soul's gps system and if you feel good you must be doing good Mm. well i don't necessarily agree with that i think that the idea of comfort and feeling good tends to be a reliance on the known so if i'm used to abusive relationships that's comfortable for me and it's familiar to me the idea that i can be in a relationship where i'm valued for who i truly am you know might be terrifying to me because it means that there are parts of me that i've put aside that may be seen and confronted and known but and i'm not I've talking about not comfortable. wanting to deal with that so comfort i don't think is necessarily positive i think it's comfort i think it's 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 acceptable the acceptable known okay but i'm not talking about comfortable feel good i'm talking about exhilarated feel good i think exhilarated feel good is terrific okay I can go for it at every opportunity mm. okay okay what do you what do you do in order to channel or do you have to do anything does it just happen well there's two different ways that i work when i'm working with the guides that come through me i literally i sit in a chair i close my eyes i have a little prayer that I work with, which sort of helps me to recede in consciousness. But I, I literally imagine that I'm climbing into the back seat of a car and turning the wheel over to whatever the consciousness is that works with me. I hear one phrase repeated insistently, um, and I, when I finally give voice to that one phrase, the rest of the teaching pours out behind it. And they'll talk as long as they want to talk, sometimes, you know, 20 minutes, sometimes 40 minutes, an hour, until they say, you know, thank you, period, period, period. And that's the channeling. When I work um, as a medium for the living, when I step into people, I usually work with the person's name. So that's my coordinate. So if you do want to know what's going on with your wife and you give me your wife's full name, I can usually step into her. If you could see me, you'd see I sometimes may start to resemble her. But I'll tell you what it feels to be as her and usually in relationship to the question that you may be having. So a lot of the work that I do privately in my practice and some of what I do in my workshops actually does involve stepping into a lot of people. And I like it because it's usually it's, it's provable stuff, you know. It's not like I'm connecting to your dead Aunt Helen, you know. I might be <laughs> tuning into your teenage kid who's having a rough time and telling you why or what she's saying is really going on as opposed to what she may have told you. So that's really about, I call it stepping in. If you ever saw the movie Ghost and you saw Whoopi Goldberg sort of being stepped into, it's a little bit like that, except I'm the one stepping in and assuming then what it feels like to be as somebody else. Hmm. And, um, And then the first thing I'm usually reading is the energy and the emotions. And then if I settle into that, the hearing may kick in as well. I call it telepathic for lack of a better word. I don't know how else to describe it. But you're somewhat present, too, when you channel, aren't you? I'm sorry, I'm somewhat present, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am, actually. I'm not, um, I'm a conscious channel. Okay. I'm not asleep. Um, Edgar Cayce, who was 
the most famous channel of the last century, was asleep and was taking dictation. Um, I'm present, and I can inquire as to the teachings as they come through, um, which is, you know, I've been known to interrupt them if I'm overly challenged by them or if I'm confused by something. I may step in and say, well, can you explain this? Um, and the guides, for the most part, will do that. Um, but I'm receded. Um, sometimes I'm highly receded. I channeled all weekend in Wisconsin last weekend, and I probably remember about a, a quarter of what came through. Um, I remember the larger gestures as opposed to the details. Um, and sometimes I'm so out of it that, you know, it's basically just a wash. But, you know, there are different ways of being in the back of the car. You can be asleep with the magazine in your lap, or you can be leaning over the front seat saying, where are you going? Mm. And when I interrupt the teachings, I'm basically saying, where are you going? Where are you taking us? I don't know if I understand this. How did you hone this skill? It developed over time. I didn't know that I could do this. Um, I had studied a form of energy healing when I was in my early 30s, and I was volunteering at a center that was providing services for people with life-challenging illness. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York, and it was something that I could do. And I found that when I had my hands on people, I started to hear things for them. So I had my hand in your chest, and I heard the name Billy. I learned to say, who's Billy? And you might say, you know, my husband, my son, my lover, my dog. And as that kept getting um, confirmed, I began to trust the transmission more. And then I started to feel what was going on in people's bodies, which was the beginning of clairsentience, which was the beginning of what I knew now in terms of stepping in. Um, but the process of hearing clairaudiently and the lecturing really, you know, came years later. I mean, I was doing a, a little group that met in my apartment for maybe 18 years, really just sitting in a circle and with, with a group of people. And the energy that would come through was very palpable, and I liked feeling the energy because you couldn't fake it. Mm -hmm. The information wasn't that interesting to me because I was thinking, who knows what this is? But gradually, and I think it was probably about 2008, um, they began to lecture through me, and that was a big change. And um, once that happened, um, and I became willing to record and then transcribe the sessions, they began to deliver the books. And it was completely unexpected. I was a college teacher for 25 years. I ran a graduate program at a small college in Vermont, and I was in the faculty of NYU um, you know, for my entire adult life. So I was doing this other work kind of quietly, and I wasn't looking for attention for it or from it. Um, it's what I was doing because I was so fascinated by it. Any relation? And now it's my work because, you know, there's so many books now I couldn't, you know, stay in the old classroom, and I'm working in a new one now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any relationship between what you were teaching at NYU and what you're doing? Only in, in the oddest way, I was teaching playwriting, and the idea wow. of, and I had been a playwright when I was young, and the idea of allowing character to speak through you, I think any playwright would say is part of that process. And when I was writing plays, um, you know, I used to put a piece of music on loop for hours at a time, and I didn't know it, but I was inducing a light trance to work in. Um, so I think that some of that work was preparing me. What I was teaching, the only thing that that really did, I mean, it taught me a few things. It taught me how to hold a safe space, which I do when I do my workshops. 
but it also gave me a vocabulary for understanding action and why people do what they do, um, which was based in you know Aristotle and all of the things you have to teach when you're teaching this stuff. And in a way, that translated very well to my ability to interpret things when I read. Um, I understand why I understand the idea that people have things that they desire and things that stand in the way of them getting their desires through that teaching, which translates very well when I read. So if I read your teenage daughter and she's coming through furious, I can also tune into what she's really angry about, what the what the fury is covering up, and what she might need to move beyond it. I can hear people at different levels. Mm-hmm. There's the personality structure that some kind, you know, most of the time that's the first thing I hit. But then I can go above that usually to what you might call the higher self and find out why and what, or what she needs or what she's really asking. And I can go to you and then feel the dynamic with you as well where you might be obstructing. So it's not a lot like looking at different characters and plays and seeing why they're operating as they are. But, you know, I'm not a therapist. I don't come with that vocabulary. I'm not a doctor. I don't come with that vocabulary. I don't do medical readings, you know. But I can interpret human behavior. And I think that the work that I did in the classroom helped give me some tools for that, although I'm now working with real people and not you know, characters in other people's plays. Well, it sounds like it gave you an ear for dramatic tension. And so you're able to sort of cut through that to the chase, so to speak. Yeah, I can be pretty quick. I mean, one of the things, I have a lot of therapists that have come to me in my practice. You know, I read for them when they when they show up, and some of them have said, you know, this was like eight sessions in therapy. We just did it in 50 minutes. But sometimes I'll work with somebody who's got a block or an issue, and I'll tune in, and the guides will say, you know, ask them what happened when they were 12. And when they were 12 would be when their parents divorced or when they burned down the house by accident. And usually when you go to that time and you move into that person at that age, you can sort of find out what happened and what perhaps they might need to move through in a really expedient way as opposed to, you know, sort of working through to that level of of trust. I can just sort of sometimes get there pretty quickly. Mm. Speaking of teenage daughters, I happen to have one. Okay. (laughs) And there is a, speaking of teenage daughters and truth, Mm. there's a truth that I feel that I know about her and her struggles her the, what she works with on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and i feel that so i feel that so unquestionably like there's mm-hmm. stuff about mm-hmm. it that i just don't feel like anybody can tell me anything about um i know this and i it is my job to work with it mm-hmm. what do you how does that c- come into the conversation that we're about to have about truth and that we were that you kind of uh, broached as you were talking about teenagers mm-hmm. and what do you what do you say there about your relationship with your daughter if you're coming from a place of love mm-hmm. and you're not coming with an agenda of who somebody else should be mm-hmm. which is your prescriptions yes. I want my even I want my daughter to be happy and this is what happy looks like mm-hmm. to you could be uh, not a very helpful way to work with her mm-hmm. or to know her 
But if you're coming from that neutrality of love and that acceptance of her, I would suggest that probably what you're knowing is accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, some people confuse the idea of truth with personal truth. My personal truth is that everybody should behave this way. And I always say, that's your opinion. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That's just what you, that's your experience. I don't deny your experience, your personal truth. But the guides say what is true is always true. So my desire to help somebody and to see them as I think they should be has often a lot to do with my wanting them to be who I think they should be based on how I was brought up or what I was told. But I do think that when you're operating acceptance and love, it's pretty hard to go wrong. And I think it's just understanding sometimes that acceptance and love doesn't necessarily mean knowing what's best in a prescriptive way. I've learned through my struggles as much as I've learned through anything else. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like going through them at all when I was going through them, but they did teach me and they were helpers. And I think we all come here to learn different things in a life. And some of the things we come to learn may not be all that easy to undergo and certainly not all that easy for the people around us, but perhaps they're still essential to, to our realization of ourselves in a higher way. This is Frank Relationships, a show for you, my brethren, who, like me, are too young to be considered old and too old to be considered young. It's also for those of you who love and support us. We're here to provide weekly wisdom, conversation, and the information that will help create better parents and partners. You can find this and our archive show. There are well over 100 at franklove.com, on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and Stitcher. In, in your latest book, Paul, you dis- it's called The Book of Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have read it and uh, am ready to talk in depth about it. And mm-hmm. But first, I want to know why discuss truth? I mean, and mind you, you have discussed love and creation, knowing and worth, mastery. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about all of those things. But why discuss truth? Well, the first thing I have to say is, you know, I don't write the books. I literally sit in a chair and I close my eyes and I hear the voice and it's recorded, and then all of those recordings are transcribed. Mm -hmm. So the book that you read is really the unedited transcripts of about 30 days' worth of sittings that make up a book. So what the guides are teaching in terms of truth is that they're saying the truth is here. It's actually a, a field. It's like a tidal wave that's encompassing everything, and they're saying our aligning to our own truth, which is, they would say, the divine self, and the the claim that they make, which is an energetic attunement that they say works with the reader and will work with you if you say it now, I know who I am in truth, I know what I am in truth, I know how I serve in truth, will actually support you in aligning to truth. They say that the attunements that they work with are actually encoded to support us in in the realization of it. They work with the energetic field. So the claim, I know who I am in truth, doesn't mean I know that I'm Paul and I live in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It's the true self claiming its purview. It's announcing itself, the I am presence, if you wish. I know an identity. I know in form. I know what I am. And the guides say how we serve is how we're expressed most fully realized and expressed at that level. Now, what they say, and this is very important, is that in truth, a lie cannot be held. 
And as we move into this accord or vibrational accord with truth, what is not true can no longer operate in the same way. And, you know, what is not true is really what is transient, our ideas of who we are. I'm not what my father or mother said I am. I am not what the church said I was. I am not what the law says I am. I am not these things that I've attached all this meaning to at the cost, perhaps, of my true expression. And I suppose that the guides would say that our true expression is as the divine self. Now, they also talk about, sort of on a planetary level, that the energy of truth is really here, and that wave is essentially reclaiming everything, so that what's not in truth is going to have to be remade or renown in a higher way. And the guides would say that that would be everything that was created in fear. Mm. The guides that I work with say that the action of fear is to claim more fear. And they say, look at every choice you've ever made because you were afraid and see what it got you. And more than likely, you got more fear. Mm. So when you stop making choices based in fear, you you stop claiming a world in fear. And what they're really talking about... I feel, is supporting us, all of us, in, 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 in reclaiming a world that's operating in a higher way. Here, here. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, wow. I'm listening. I'm, I'm, I found myself looking around as I took that idea on that nothing that's been created, that everything that's been created in fear can and will somehow be reworked mm. to be a thing of value and beauty at some point or or energetically is being reworked and that things change. I thought it was interesting uh, when your guys said things change not by force, they change because they can. And I thought, hmm, interesting. And how we go through our own sort of mental and physical gyrations about these changes because so much of our identity is plugged into the way things are, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even if they're fear-based. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, this whole conversation around fear, the question that was in my mind as I was coming this way, I was having a conversation with my mom about a couple of incidences where uh, cars were stolen and you know people were hurt not hurt badly but hurt and certainly probably hurt more psychologically because they were vulnerable mm-hmm. and i found myself thinking you know i the thing that was of the greatest concern for me is that my mother not enter into this place where the world is scary now mm-hmm. And she kind of retracts and retreats from life Mm -hmm. because it's getting bad out there kind of thing. And how to, you know, and and even in the management of my own vibration, like, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to be thinking Mm -hmm. uh, and being so that I don't resonate with certain ways of being? Mm -hmm. I've I've got something I want to read. Okay. This is from his book. It's uh, fear is a lie and any form it's taken is also a lie. Now, can a lie be labeled as truth? Yes, it can. And here is the conflict that you are all going to face. 
there may be a very good intention outlined in something that has also manifested in a fearful way. You intend to have government to support the needs of the people. This can be very this can be a very productive thing. But if that government is operating in fear or seeking to establish itself in fear or rule over others, which is an action of fear, the identity of the government must be renowned in a truthful way for it to align to the new vibration that is here as you. And we will add in all men. So the idea of a battle between good and evil. I love this part. The mm -hmm. idea of a battle between good and evil is also a fear-based structure. It's not true. The only battle you have is with your own self or the identity that is claimed in fearful ways that has produced the structures that you have inherited and in fact reinforced by naming them as fearful. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. idea of, of good, good and, and evil, evil is also a fear-based structure. Wow. I love that. And that comes up in conversations I find myself in with different people sometimes uh, around good guys, bad guys. It, it's, and I, I so, when I hear people say that, I want to say, who are these bad guys? <laughs> I mean, where are these bad guys? I mean, I, I don't, I don't don't recognize them. Right. People do things that I don't like. People do things that I wouldn't it, do. Yeah. But I don't know who these inherently bad guys are. And so when I hear that, that's like a, 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 a good and evil conversation. So I, I'll leave, I'll open the floor to give you the floor, Paul. What do you say? Well, you know, the guides have said, and this isn't a new teaching. I think it's in a lot of, a lot of a lot of teachings, but the guides say, you know what, you damn damns you back, mm -hmm. and it's a pretty easy one. And they also say you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. You just can't be so, you know, and that's the height of hypocrisy. Now, it's a challenging teaching that you know the the good the good the evil stuff. I mean, they talk about you know this is being the evil is being an idea as much as anything else that we have, but. I think it boils down to this idea that the divine has to be present in all manifestation. You can't sort of exclude some things and say, well, God is in this but not in that. If there is something you want to call God, the, a universal power, whatever it may be, it needs to be in everyone and everything. And the realization of that is what supports transformation, not the denial of that. So one of the first questions you asked me in this interview was, you know, does how we perceive anything inform the structure of that thing? And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. You know, what I claim is evil, what I, if you want to say cast out, what I put in darkness, what I put outside of God, essentially calls me right to that. You see, so if I want to do that, I can do that, but the convenience of that is a level of energetic alignment to the thing that I say that I don't want. So it's easy to see the divine in things that we agree with. It's challenging to see the divine in the things we don't, or the things that we've been taught to be frightened of. But I don't know what changes if we stay afraid. I don't know what changes that guides again say the action of fear is to claim more fear. And that's, that's how I understand it. So in a historical context, Paul, when we're looking at things that just about all of us, as far as I know, consider to be 
evil acts, whether mm -hmm. it was the Holocaust, whether mm -hmm. it was slavery in this country mm -hmm. or anywhere else, or even some of the current dynamics that we're dealing with, um, you're saying seeing those things as evil is a matter of perspective and that something of value or beauty can come from even those things and yet if I want to if I if I commit an mm -hmm. act against another person that is not light or truth giving mm -hmm. and then I want to leap to oh but in the final analysis this is all going to work out for everybody then there is no so then I especially the perpetrator then says oh I didn't do anything wrong see what I yeah. did, it may have hurt you in the moment, but look at all the good it's done now. I don't think that's the way. I think that would be, that would be an excuse. The guides say we're accountable individually and collectively for all of our creations. Okay. What we make is ours, you know? I mean, if I want to do something, I have to claim the ramifications of that choice. It doesn't mean that the choice can't be learned through and that ultimately it can serve evolutionary purposes in some ways. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a terrible thing, but if any of the acts that you, you mentioned were claimed, they need to be reclaimed in a higher level. And that doesn't support the fact that they exist or make them okay. I don't think it's that at all. Um, now, let me see, if you wish. I'm going to have to go to the guides on this one because it's too big a question. I should say if I'm going to channel it all on this thing, I whisper the words as they come and repeat. So I'm going to see if they want to take this question. We would like to. They're actually saying we would like to because it's not an informed question. Because it's an uninformed question in some ways. In some ways, any act that claim another, any act that is claimed by another has an opportunity to be known. Has an opportunity to be known at any level. At any level, it can be seen as a tragedy. It can be seen as a tragedy, a terrible occurrence, a terrible occurrence, or an opportunity, or an opportunity for change. If you claim the higher, if you claim the higher, the opportunity, the opportunity for change the act becomes an occurrence the act becomes an occurrence that can transform that can transform an individual an individual a culture a culture or a world or a world if you decide if you decide that the terrible thing you see that the terrible thing you see must remain terrible must remain terrible in fact you hold it in fact you hold it limitation in limitation you've defined it you've defined it you're confirming the terribleness of it and you are confirming the terribleness of it which in fact calls you to that very thing which in fact calls Calls you to that very thing and maintains a relationship negativity and maintains a relationship of negativity to move beyond negativity to move beyond negativity or the fear that informs it or the fear that informs it requires the potential requires you to see the potential that can exist that can exist any occurrence in any occurrence for realization for realization for the divine principle for the divine principle to be revealed to be revealed is in fact inherent that is in fact inherent in all manifestation in all manifestation, high and low between, high and low and in between, period, period. And they're saying period, period. Thank you. So that's their answer. There, you, in your book, you discuss the levels of truth. You say, the first face you see, we will call the mask. That's the face that's being invited to be seen. See who I am as I wish. Let me be known as I wish to be. Mm -hmm. The second level we can call this truth is what is being hidden, is what is fearful of being seen that the mask in fact protects. 
You will not love me if you know who I am. You will think me foolish or forlorn. You will desire me in a way that I cannot handle. You will judge me if you understand who I truly am. Mm. So the mask protects you. And when you move beyond the mask that protects another, the first thing you see is what, in fact, the mask protects. Mm. Now, the next thing that happens when your intent is to see them in truth and loving truth is you comprehend the aspect of the self that is so afraid. You do not judge that aspect. That aspect was created in fear or in need. And the mass that it covers is a protective device that was created in need as well. So to decide that someone is full of S-H-I-T <laughs> and we are using that word intentionally is that they're full of the mass that they are wearing to protect themselves from what you need to see if you saw beneath it. Mm. So what what I what I am interpreting what you're saying is if you begin to uh, accept and appreciate and kind of see under and past the mass that someone is is presenting you with and not in judgment but in love if you see that someone shall we say for lack of a well we can say if you see that someone is lying and you don't even you're not hard on it you're not hard on them because they're lying or presenting a a, a, a facade or whatever have you you just simply kind of feel what their experience is you you are interested in learning why they are doing that and going deeper in your caring of them and appreciation and acceptance of who they are that that is love correct well the guys just said correct they answered the question which i wasn't expecting them to do but they just said correct they're saying he meaning you as they're saying you're understanding it very well, very well. see i would have thought of it a little bit differently which is interesting because when i because i don't recall I mean, it was, it's interesting for me to hear you read these passages because they're somewhat familiar, but I'm hearing them almost as new ideas in somebody else's voice. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, we understand the mask and then we understand that the mask is protecting something that is made in fear, you know, also allows us then to move to a realization of a true self which would be the claim one makes for another. I know who you are in truth. I know what you are in truth. I know how you serve in truth, which, by the way, isn't just a bunch of words. There seems to be an energy that resonates with the word um, or with, with the grouping of words or the claim that can be felt by many people in the field that they hold. When they do this in workshops, the whole room is feeling it and buzzing with it. Now, the guides say, because you know, that there's not a lie that's ever been told that hasn't been told in fear. And you know, when you talk about you know seeing somebody and they're lying, I mean, you're understanding you're dealing with you're, you're dealing with someone who is afraid. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think confirming anybody's fear is necessarily all that helpful. Um, I mean, if somebody is in trouble and they're frightened of an outcome, you help them. You know, if if, if you can, certainly. But by Confirming fear, I think I mean confirming the impulse to be afraid or to wear the mask if the mask isn't serving us. Um, I don't think that helps anybody. So, yeah, you got it right. I'm making it more complicated, perhaps, than it needs to be. <laughs> it sounds like when I, when I reflect on what you, what you said, Frank, that 
if you can listen through the untruth and see, accept, love the person more completely, more deeply, that something about that process melts the mask over time. Yeah. It would just have to in my mind. Yeah. Like the like the lie or the untruth that they're being or saying would event that you it's like you it couldn't hold up mm-hmm. in front of that kind of just total acceptance. Mm-hmm. I I was watching a interview that Paul did on Nightline. Okay. And um one of the things that they asked him, I believe they asked him whether well, he said people sometimes ask whether their partners are having an affair. Right. And he said he doesn't he Answer. doesn't get into that. Mm. And I I instantly thought to myself and and I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to throw the ball to him in a second, but I instantly thought to myself because it doesn't matter. That's not really what is important. What you you don't really That's not care about whether they're having an affair. You care about whether they love you. Or whether they are connected with you, but you know, I that those are my words, Paul. What are yours? Well, I agree with you. I mean, part of the reason I don't do that in my practice um, is there's a line that I feel I don't cross, which is spying. Mm. You know, right. I can tune into. You know, I I I can tune in if somebody's having a problem with a spouse, and I tune into the spouse, and I feel the energy of lust, and I feel, you know, and there are symbols that I get when I tune into that and I start licking my lips. That usually is the symbol for that. And I'm looking all over the place. I, you know, I might know that the person is operating from, you know, a place of desire in in, in the world and that it's going all over the place. It's not focused on the partner. Mm -hmm. And would I say that? Yes. But if somebody comes to me and it says, I want to know if my spouse is cheating, um, you know, or I want to know if my great uncle messed with me when I was seven years old because I think somebody, you know, that there are things that I don't do because I think that they're crossing a line. Um, And I think that my integrity in my work has to stay clear. I don't want to see somebody, you know, acting out because somebody said something about something that happened 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Or if I tune into your spouse and your neighbor and I notice that there's interest there, I might say, well, there's certainly interest there, but I'm not seeing anything going beyond that. Um, I think I would probably say that and maintain the integrity, but does it really matter is the higher question. And if there is love there, you know, I think what you would call an indiscretion or something like that or, or you know, any any other thing um, is, is certainly secondary to that love. Yes. Um, I just always say, you know, I'm not a psychic spy. You know, people try to avail me of those services. I can read a board of directors and find out where everybody's coming from, and I've been known to do that. But I'm just seeing how people are feeling about things and how they're thinking about things um, at a higher level. I'm not, you know, deciding somebody else's future as a result of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is what you do fun? Do you enjoy it? It's a good question. You know, when I realized that I could really do this, that I was stepping in and being accurate and taking on people's personalities and 
and, and mannerisms. I was so fascinated by it. Now that I know that I can do it and I'm accurate and effective, I'm less entertained by it myself. Mm-hmm. Do I enjoy doing it? I enjoy the experience of stepping into many people's lives. It's an opportunity that other people don't necessarily get, and I'm gifted to have that. The channeling I find really interesting and physically very challenging. It's actually somewhat exhausting to work Mm. as I work. I whisper, I repeat, I channel for five hours a day when I'm doing workshops, um, and there's a tremendous amount of information and energy being transmitted. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily fun, um, but it's it's still very interesting. Um, so do I enjoy it? Yes. Did I enjoy teaching at NYU and having a bunch of college students, you know, learning how to write plays and screenplays? I loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a different kind of way of being in the world. Um, so I'm still getting used to the fact in some ways that this has become my life. And I'm scratching my head. I mean, eight years ago, I didn't have any books out, and I never thought I would write one. You know, mm-hmm. now there are five on the shelves, you know, since 2010. Um, and mm-hmm. there's another one that I'm about to begin in a couple of weeks, and I have no idea what they're going to talk about, mm-hmm. which is mildly terrifying for me because the rules with all of these books has been I can't change them. You know, mm-hmm. if it's in the dictation, it winds up in the book. I can't go back and edit and take things out and make it pretty. So the book that you read is as it was delivered, and that's how they all are. So is that fun? It's fascinating. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. And it can bring me real joy, um, but I'm still getting used to it. And not only may it be interesting, but it's also in service. I hear that. Mm -hmm. It is in service, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you you have a good book you might recommend to the audience? Whether and and we won't not including yours, not including mine. Yeah. Um, you can say no, Paul. You know, <laughs> I was a fan of um, when I was first waking up to stuff. Um, I like the old works of Emmett Fox, The Sermon on the Mount. I think is, a, is an amazing book. It was written, I think, in the 1920s, mm-hmm. okay. um, and that had a profound impact on me. But um, not including mine, I think you should read mine too. I think they're great. But, Got it. You know, they're up to that's up to the reader. That's mm-hmm. up to the that's up to the listener. And once more, um, the books that he, Paul's books are the mastery. What is it? Love and it's it's on love and creation. He has one on love and creation, knowing and worth, mastery, and I am the word is the title mm-hmm. of the I believe it's the first book. The I very am the first word. book was I am the word. Yes. 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 You have a website? I do. It's my name, Paul S E L I G dot com. Paul Selig dot com is my website, and I do live streams every Wednesday evening, and I do workshops all over the place, and um, you know it's 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 interesting stuff to be a part of. You're listening to Frank Relationships, and we've been talking with psychic medium, and award-winning author, Paul Selig. One more time, Paul, please give us that website and tell us, uh, tell us what you're up to. You got any uh, seminars or anything going on at the Omega Institute coming up? I was just at the Omega Institute. The website is um, paul, P-A-U-L-S-E-L-I-G.com. Um, this coming Sunday, I'm doing a one-day workshop in New York City that's going to be live-streamed so people can attend that 
from anywhere they are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a five-day retreat coming up in Boone, North Carolina at the beginning of August. I'll be at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California in early September. There are workshops coming up in um, Minneapolis, in Sedona, um, in Boston. In a couple of weeks, I'll be in Boston. So it's all up on my website, but there, there are lots of opportunities to, um, to work with the guides if people are interested. Great. Are there, are, I, I'm assuming that the majority of people don't know what it means to be, well, what an infinite self is or what mm-hmm. it means to be read. Is there anything you want to say or can say to the lay person who's stumbling upon this interview, sure. you know, just, just the average Joe? Yeah. Well, I think the easier way to understand it, if I can, is, there's an aspect in all of us that is of its source, that knows who it is and has always known, isn't afraid. The guides say the true self is unafraid. The true self does not seek to get affirmation from the world. The true self could care less what anybody else thinks of it. It's that part of you that's always there that always knows. It's the seed of the divine that's in all of us. And, you know, recognizing that there is an aspect of us that is seeking its realization as and through us, which is really the work of all of these books, it's just understanding it's the God within. I think that's the easiest way to begin to look at it. Along today's journey, we've discussed the small self, fear, and love and acceptance. Thank you to my co-host, Nancy. Thanks to Jeff Newman, my engineer, and thank you to my guest, Mr. Paul Selig. You've been great. Thanks for having me. I hope you've had as much fun as I've had hanging out with today's ensemble. As always, it's my wish for you to walk away from this conversation with a heaping helping of useful information that'll help you create a relationship that's as loving and accepting as possible. Let us know what you thought of today's show at Facebook forward slash Relationship F Love on Twitter at Mr. That's M-R Frank Love or at franklove.com. If you're listening via Blog Talk Radio, make sure you like us there. And if via iTunes, make sure you subscribe so that you can receive each week's show. This is Frank Love.